All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Mindset Effect podcast. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, yeah, if any of you guys were actually listening right there and, like, paying attention, like you should have been doing the whole time, Kevin just said that this is episode 22 of the Mindset Effect podcast. But if you actually know anything about this podcast and have been listening or can read English or numbers, you would know that this is episode 20. It's not 22. It's not 24. It's not 70. It's not 600. It is freaking episode 20. Like, do you guys see what I have to deal with? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, please send help. I I don't know how much longer I can, like, actually survive with this lunatic helping me with this. Like, oh, sweet baby Jesus. But... Anyway, I'm going to forget that this just happened, and I'm going to try to calm myself down, maybe beat my head against the wall a few times, but take a few deep breaths, and we are going to continue. So try to enjoy the rest of the podcast. I wish you luck on that. Um, Today we are joined by our first female guest ever, Mrs. (laughs) Ashley Zumwalt Forbes. Welcome, welcome. Hey, thanks. Nice to nice to represent my my gender. So awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're gonna switch things up today, actually. And instead of us introducing you, we're gonna have you do the honors. So tell us, you know, a bit about what you do. Cool. Yeah. So I'm Ashley. Um, I'm from Oklahoma, live in Texas. My background's oil and gas, but actually over the last two years. I transitioned from being a drilling and completions engineer, so deep in oil and gas, deep technical role, um, into to being a co-founder and president of an international battery metals mining company. And so we've deployed kind of U.S. $75 million into nickel, copper, and cobalt in Australia. So I live in Texas, but all of our assets are in Western Australia, and I spend about 50% of my time in Perth. Um, so I travel a ton. First quarter of this year, I flew 111,000 miles, which is absurd. No one should ever do that. Um, yeah, so I'm married. Um, my husband lives here in Fort Worth. We have a cat. I like to bike. I think that's my summary. <laughs> I love that. What was it like when you were younger? Um, you know, I'm from the middle of nowhere also, and so like, in Oklahoma, there probably weren't a ton of like business opportunities. Like, did you ever think that you were going to, you know, become what you became? Um, so look, um, you know, Oklahoma has a tremendous amount of oil and gas. Um, so, you know, one of our largest industries is oil and gas. Um, I'm from a small town. So I'm from a place called Choctaw. Um, and I was the first person in my family to, to go to college. So, you know, really the opportunities I saw uh, to become a professional or become professionalized were very much kind of go into oil and gas, uh, be a doctor, be a lawyer. Like those were kind of the the options that I kind of saw. Um, And from that perspective, you know, those three pathways in Oklahoma, there are tremendous opportunities, particularly in oil and gas. And so... I went to University of Oklahoma, majored in petroleum engineering, um, ended up moving to Texas, but 
you know, um, I'd say like from a perspective of, of being involved in that business and being operational and kind of being very people focused. Um, I think, you know, that's where I would have imagined that I would have ended up this, um, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and, and raising capital and managing a team internationally, like never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined it. Um, I've always wanted to be entrepreneurial, but um, it, it, it's uh, another level of conviction to actually go out and, and start. Yeah. So it's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say, you know, you being the first in your family to go to college, was that a big motivator for you to do better? you know, at your job right now? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's an interesting question. And, you know, uh, I've always kind of um, strived to just do my absolute best. And I'd say, like, I might not be the smartest person in the room, but I can almost promise you that I will outwork everyone in yes. the room. I'm a tremendously hard worker. And I think, you know, my family did instill that in me. I come from a very long line of like incredibly hard workers, farmers, tradesmen, women. My great grandma rebuilt her own front porch at 80 years old. So like I come from some hard workers. Um, and so I'd say, you know, from, from that perspective, like that definitely was ingrained in me and, and definitely helped. Yeah, we love that. We all say that talents. We all say that talents, you know, hard work beats talents when talent doesn't work hard. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So what does a normal day for you look like then? Like what time do you get up and how does that work? Yeah. So today is actually a particularly bad reflection of my, of my <laughs> normal day. So um, I don't really have a normal day, to be honest with you. Like I'm always in a different part of the world and um, I'm always kind of working on supporting a different deal or talking to investors or managing employees or out at the mine site. Like I could be doing anything, which is why I love it. Um, I can walk you through my day today. So last night I was up until 3 a.m. on phone calls in Australia because it's directly opposite. And then my calls started this morning at 6 a.m. with some folks in the Middle East. So I only slept for two hours, which... Actually, usually I, I sleep more than that, um, but it just depends. Time zones are hard, and I try to be flexible. Nice, nice. So, do you drink coffee, tea, or soda? Oh my gosh, I drink so much coffee. I'm on oh like my a God. fifth cup of coffee today. It's insane. Actually, <laughs> that's I got insane. It. Got it right here. <laughs> Never leaves my side. <laughs> Kevin, nice. yeah, Kevin just got into coffee like two or three days ago, and he was just like, "Dude, is there coffee at Ohio State?" Because I'm never stopping. <laughs> oh my god, it's gosh. so yeah. good. There's I feel like more awake than ever. Coffee everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> How much of like your success do you attribute to like having that caffeine? Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. You know what? I've um, you know, I always kind of contemplate doing these random like health cleanses or something, you know, like uh, only eating vegetables for a week or, you know, whatever the kind of trend or craze is. So often those things require you to stop drinking coffee. And I just make an exception. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I just <laughs> mm -hmm. don't, I don't function before 
kind of my first cup of coffee in the morning. So it's just a part of me. It comes with me. I'm a big like diet coke drinker. And it's funny because like I told Kevin, I was like, after spring break, I'm going to like completely cut diet coke out. And then like spring break happened and I'm still drinking. And, like, Don't just- drink a diet coke, man. <laughs> yeah, it's you probably worse. <laughs> you mm-hmm. gotta watch that aspartame mm-hmm. yep. yeah I, I think it's funny because like diet coke you don't have to like actually make it coffee you have to make it it's like if coffee's free then i'll usually do that so like uh, but like with all of this covid 19 stuff there's no free coffee just lying around and so i would have to like make it and i just don't want to do that yeah no i totally get it mm-hmm. how are y'all dealing with covid um have you been quarantined yeah mm-hmm. yeah kind of sucks I've- but it's not too bad yeah. yeah. Luckily, we're both programmers, so we're kind of used to just like sitting in a room and coding for hours on end. So it's, awesome. it's yeah. So it's not like super terrible, but we were kicked off campus because um, we go to Ohio State. Yeah. Um, but in my opinion, that honestly made school easier and it allowed me to get more control of my schedule because before that, I was a little bit more like you on the like ungodly amounts of like stuff to do and like no time. Um, but it's much better yeah. here. Good. Well, I'm mm-hmm. thrilled. I know it's, I think it's important, particularly in these times to try to find like the positives. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. So it's great. You know, I think a lot of people have been able to kind of soak on their priorities and really what they want to do with this break and kind of downtime. So got to focus mm-hmm. on the positives where you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you go about like managing all the stuff that you have to do? Like I'm assuming to use like a Google calendar or something like that. Um, so look, I have kind of two main, um, ways of tracking. So I literally live and die by my Outlook calendar. So Outlook calendar, and I have two phones. So I have an Australia phone and a U.S. phone. And so my calendars are all represented, um, in my Outlook on my computer and then just my iCalendar on, on both iPhones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my second method of managing productivity literally just to-do lists. So what I do is I have sticky notes for each day of the week and I kind of, uh, you know, make lists with little squares that I can put a, a, an X through once I accomplish it um, in my in my notebook. And then I have a sticky note for every person who reports to me um, with things that I need to follow up with them on or, you know, deliverables over the next couple of weeks. And that's mm-hmm. how I manage things and just kind of like stay on top of it. Big list person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So why do you think batteries are the future? Like, and could you, yeah. could you tell us a bit more about, you know, the technical side of manufacturing those batteries? Like how much yeah. cheaper and more cost efficient are they, you know, than Absolutely. doing gas? Yeah. So it's a really interesting question. And I think the best way to answer it is, um, it, Electric vehicles are statistically much more efficient than internal combustion engines due to heat loss. So EVs don't have heat loss. If you look at the history of mankind, efficiencies always went out. And so, you know, I'd say like two, I'm from an oil and gas background. So like for me to kind of come to this realization two years ago, um, is really saying something. So, you know, I don't take a view that oil and gas is fully going away, but what I do recognize is inevitably a piece of the puzzle is going to go towards electrification, towards batteries, 
towards this greener and more renewable future. Um, it's due to efficiency and also um, government mandates. Yeah. So it's actually a really interesting dynamic, um, but particularly governments across Europe and then um, China and India um, have instated uh, a, a countrywide targets for adoptions of greener technologies. Um, and what you've seen from those decisions are really ripple effects across automotive companies um, mm -hmm. that they're starting to get on board with announcing their decarbonizing Volkswagen. I think they're um, a 2030 target. You know, basically, you know, every couple of weeks you see announcements out of auto companies saying, you know, we're releasing an electric, an electric vehicle, we're going all electric. Um, setting incredibly ambitious targets. Mm -hmm. um, and just my last point there is, I think the biggest shift um, on the ESG side, so environmental social governance, um, around the shift from carbon intensive to decarbonized, really came, uh, I guess, late last year when BlackRock announced that they were no longer going to deploy capital into carbon intensive businesses. And so when you have the largest alternative asset manager in the world coming out and saying oil and gas is out, if you're not paying attention to the environment and paying attention to ESG, we're not going to put capital in you. The writing's on the wall that you've got to adapt, you've got to evolve, you've got to survive. And so that's why I think it's the future. Yeah. So just like how cars, you know, they replace, they gradually replace horses. Like yeah. this, this process of, you know, electric cars replacing gas cars. What do you think the, the time horizon of that is? Look, it's a good question. And it, it, I, I'm it's in no way recommending that like, it's going to be this automatic switch. We're all going to be electric. It's going to take a significant amount of time to make that transition. Um, and the more improvements we can make on energy density and batteries. So a battery can go further without being recharged um, and uh, nationwide charging capacity and charging speed. Um, it's only going to accelerate that adoption rate. So there are some good forecasts out there. Even OPEC, OPEC put out a, a, a quite a good EV forecast that, you know, is, is, is honest. Um, I can't quote the exact percentages and numbers, but you know, it's, it, it's quite bullish. Um, I'd say kind of, you know, there are going to be stepwise and, and exponential differences, but um, I think, you know, consensus is 2030 EVs are going to be a real significant portion of market share. Mm -hmm. And I'd say 2050 is really where you start seeing majority of new vehicles. So it's a slow burn, but a slow burn in a huge market is still a huge market. Definitely. That's the really interesting thing also about uh, companies like Tesla. It's like you see them doing this with everything. So even like the self-driving cars, it's like it's never going to be like some immediate thing. It's like they're slowly implementing these things. So like you've got like the highway, um, like automatic driving as well. And it's yeah. like just slowly building the features to eventually like make it a whole thing, which I think is yeah. really, really cool. So I have a, I bought a Model S um, late last year. So I bought the first um, long range Model S that's the, the supercharged one or not, not supercharged, I, I don't know, <laughs> the one with ludicrous, whatever. whatever. Yeah. Um, but so I can drive 
350 miles without a recharge. Um, and to, to your point on it being a self-driving car, you know, on the highway, it will fully drive itself. And honestly, I trust my car driving more than I trust myself. Like <laughs> they are, it is, it is incredible. Um, and I actually downloaded an update on my car over the weekend that it can now recognize stop signs and stoplights. Wow. So wow. you're, you're getting to a, a position where, it's going to drive itself even not on the highway. So I, I am super bullish on Tesla, not just because I own one, but I was in the market for a car and I was draw, I was, I test drove everything like, uh, you know, very nice kind of like top end vehicles. And the second I got in the Tesla, I was like, this thing blows everyone out of the water from a technology a technology perspective, a driving experience perspective. They've just done a phenomenal job. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's so fun to drive. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Do you ever have like a goal of like eventually meeting Elon Musk or anything? Oh man. Oh, I'd love to meet Elon Musk. What a guy. Um, mm -hmm. Such like a visionary. Um, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, there, I mean, there are tons of, of business people that, that I really look up to. Um, I'd say Elon Musk from a, from a visionary standpoint would be hard to, to top. you know, Elon Musk. And I think Richard Branson is another, another one of those really like visionary people. Um, from the perspective of like my favorite business people, I love Sarah Blakely, the founder of mm -hmm. Spanx. I love her. I think she's incredible, a great role model, also an incredible businesswoman. And, um, and then like, you, you'd be remiss to list business people you look up to and not name more about it. Mm, um, yeah. So, yeah I, th I think that that rounds out my list, but yes, I'd, I'd love to be Elon Musk. Be cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious. So is mining ore harder to, is, is that harder than mining coal and gas? Um, so it's a good question. So um, when you're getting gas out of the ground, you're simply drilling a well. So it's not like you are physically going into the earth and getting it out. Um, you're certainly on the rig, you know, uh, managing operations to ensure the gas can flow to surface. Um, but you don't physically go into the earth. So it produces itself from pressure differential. Um, mining, so specifically, you know, our mines in Australia, um, metalliferous mining, so nickel, copper, and cobalt, um, they're quite deep mines. So, um, you know, the, the current mine face is at a thousand meters below surface, um, and you physically go down that far. So, um, you know, you're, you're physically drilling, blasting, and hauling ore up from a thousand meters below the surface. Um, and so from that perspective, it's certainly different. Like it's certainly a different model. Um, coal, coal is a bit different as well. So generally coal is a bit shallower. Um, and it, it just depends kind of how, um, the depositional environment and what kind of ore body you're targeting. So they're all very different, uh, methodologies and techniques. What I will say is from a business model standpoint and an economic standpoint, there are a lot more similarities than you would anticipate uh, between mining and oil and gas. Because at the end of the day, it's still a finite resource in the ground that you've got to figure out how to get out um, yeah. and make money. So, you know, it's the same general concept. This is obviously like a super um, capital intensive, like 
thing to get into. Like, how did you first start that out? Like, did you have to go to investors right away? And like, how did you pitch that? Like, what did that whole fundraising process look like? For sure. Um, So look, I mean, resources are incredibly capital intensive. Like there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, And certainly that does create good barriers to entry. Um, It's, it's, hard to create a new oil and gas or a new mining company because, you know, $1 million won't do anything. Um, you know, we, we've deployed um, U.S. $75 million to date. And so really, you know, talking to investors is something I, I do every day. Um, investor relations is a very real part of it. Um, in raising capital is is um, a skill set all of its own. So I'd say like arguably the hardest part of start, definitely the hardest part of starting a business. And mm-hmm. um, really how I approached those conversations was pretty much the conversation we've had today. Like the world is changing and we need to be on the front foot um, and really kind of get on the ground floor and show that we're a company that's not afraid to kind of disrupt ourselves and plan for the future um, and uh, find some good resources, play to our strengths, be nimble, be entrepreneurial. Um, And my investors are actually, uh, for the most part, uh, high net worth oil and gas people. Um, So it's interesting that, you know, I'm oil and gas and and our investors are oil and gas, um, but we're all kind of working towards a, towards a greener future. So everybody knows it's coming. Yeah. So you mentioned how ore doesn't have an indefinite supply. And so just like coal, it's going to run out one day. So like, what do you see yourself doing um, in that, in that future? Or is it too far in the future to, you know, worry about right now? Way too far in the future. Okay. So look, I, I um, when I said like, it's a finite resource, when you find an ore body, it's only a set amount of ore that, that you found and drilled out and you can mine. There's active exploration efforts continuing to go on and folks are continuing to find new ore bodies, build mines and then mine those. Um, So, you know, super far in the future. Um, And I'd say, you know, I'm just such a believer in human ingenuity and and our ability to continue adapting and in surviving. So, um, I have full expectations that by the time we run out of these finite, uh, you know, metals, we'll, we'll have something else figured out. We, we might be following Elon Musk and, and living, on, living on Mars or something. Mm-hmm. How did you guys go about like finding your first mine then? Yeah. So I did a global scan of opportunities and we knew we wanted to be specifically in nickel, something called class one nickel sulfide, which is what's used in lithium ion battery cathode precursors. Um, and uh, nickel is what gives lithium ion batteries energy density. So we talked about that's kind of the most important quality in batteries. So we knew we wanted to be class one nickel sulfides. Um, and I just started traveling everywhere um, and looking at mines, looking at opportunities, networking, meeting people, tremendous amount of work. Um, and, and landed on Western Australia. So there's a specific uh, basin. It's one of the most prolific nickel mining basins in the world. It's called Kimbalda, the Kimbalda Dome. Um, and that's where we went and started deploying capital. There were some good actionable opportunities. 
Mm, okay. Yeah. So how do you guys differentiate yourselves from your competitors? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, our skill set, and this is across Black Mountain, not just Black Mountain Metals, but our skill set is really focused on being nimble and entrepreneurial and moving quickly. So the mines that we acquired are kind of scrappy mines. Like if BHP went and bought these mines, they'd lose a ton of money because they're very small and you need um, an appropriate capital structure and an appropriate cost basis such that you can mine a scrappy mine and still be profitable. Um, and so from our perspective, we're able to approach these smaller resources in a creative uh, and fit for purpose way such that we can make money. Um, so that's really how we differentiate ourselves by just bringing this fresh perspective and ensuring we're not gold plating anything. Everything can be fit for purpose. So you need to continuously disrupt your business model to ensure, you know, there's a reason you're doing everything you're doing. Yeah. Is there like a metric for that? Like energy, energy return for money invested, something like that? I mean, like, arguably ROI, okay. so return on investment, so money in, money out, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah. you, you have to actively put cash, oh, well, you actively have to pay cash to buy the mine, and then there's there's ongoing um, CapEx expenses, so sustaining CapEx, and then there's OpEx as well. So, you know, it costs money to, to get, get ore out of the mine, and um, so, you know, uh, I, I'd say like profit margin and return on investment, like it, fully financial metrics. So what do you think with like your first investor ever? Like, what do you think got them to trust you? Like, do you think it was um, like going to Harvard Business School or like, how did you go about doing that? Because especially with like Harvard Business School, like the majority of the CEOs that I see that do really well end up having that degree. Yeah, um, I, I definitely feel lucky to, to have, have attended. Um, my first investor, we just kind of see the world the same way. Uh, and it was a tremendous amount of relationship development and um, alignment, you know, over, over a period of years. So getting to know each other, you know, we had been able to, to ascertain that we do see the world the same way and do business the same way. So it was more of a relationship-based, like trust-based investment. Um, and oftentimes you have to do that. Like before you have a track record as, as an entrepreneur, you've, you've got to establish it somehow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you... yeah. so who are your end users in this case? So nickel's used by, um, a shocking number of, of industries. So the greatest percentage of, of end nickel use is stainless steel. So I mean like far and away the greatest end use and um, specifically class one nickel sulfides, uh, generally can command a premium in the market because they're um, used in batteries. And so they're a higher quality nickel um, such that their purity is appropriate to go in precursors for lithium ion battery cathodes. Um, and so from that standpoint, you know, I, I can't talk specifically about um, my uh, commercial arrangements because um, in the market, everything's kind of confidential in that way. But think of like big battery manufacturers. So um, some big ones in Asia would be like uh, BYD, Panasonic, um, 
Tesla is a really big battery manufacturer. You know, they have to buy incredible amounts of metals. Um, so there, there are a, a tremendous amount of end users. Oh, so you guys are just wholesaling all the ore that you mine then, right? We mine metal, concentrate it, and then you put it in shipping containers and sell it to the end user. Got it. Yep. So like, how did you go about getting like your first customer? Like, what did that pitch look like? And like, who did you reach out to with that? Yeah. So it's a bit different than like me going out and like selling like t-shirts or something, yeah. right? <laughs> Where you're like selling one at a time and like trying to just make it before you make the capital investment to, to restart a mine, you have to have offtake fully contracted. Um, or you can't go to a bank and get like a working capital facility. So you, you do a fully, um, a fully competitive offtake process. So you put all of the qualities and specs of the ore that you're going to mine alongside the volume. Um, and so you send all of those specs to end users, basically all the end users in the market. So whether it's and nickel smelters, traders, or battery manufacturers. Those are like your three kind of main categories. And they send you back uh, what payability percent of LME nickel price they will pay you. Um, and you go with the best deal. And then they generally, you will sell 100% to one party, although it's becoming more common to split it between two. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So like, I'm assuming that that was some data that you were able to use for like your first investors um, to be like, hey, look, we have kind of like the, um, like if you're like running a tech startup, you go around and maybe get like letters of intent or something if it's a B2B kind of thing. Yep. Yep. Um, that, that same concept. You're exactly mm -hmm. right. So the risk is not there mm -hmm. that you're going to mine it. And nobody's going to buy it. Like mm -hmm. they're, they're obligated to buy it. Flip side, you are obligated to mine it once you've signed that contract. Mm -hmm. All right. Puts you, you in a really weird position, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you guys get government subsidies for what you do? We don't, no. So okay. we're just a mining company. Um, it, just a mining company. Um, <laughs> but so, uh, like, um, you know, it, and I'm kind of speaking out of school. Like I really am no expert on who gets or what kind of businesses get subsidies. I know it's quite common in it's so we don't, but it is quite common in like renewable businesses, yeah. like green businesses that there are grants or incentives to keep doing what you're doing. We're mining ore, um, which is fundamental to the electric revolution. Like, we're not going to have batteries if we don't have nickel or copper or cobalt, but they literally cannot be manufactured, but you're not like a, a green business yourself. If, mm -hmm. if you know what I'm saying, so you don't fall in that category, but it's all right. We make plenty of money. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you instill like uh, this growth mindset in your, in your company and your employees? Yeah. So, um, there's, there's a, a philosophy on creating an organization um, and specifically de designing roles within an organization such that you have an entrepreneurial gap in the different roles that you're designing. Uh, and that's something I'm really passionate about. So, you know, again, uh, you know, I outlined like how we compete against people is that 
we're able to be fit for purpose and, and continue disrupting ourselves and being entrepreneurial. And so that's something I, I value in myself and in the business, but it's something that I also re require my, my, my team to have um, and to think that way and to truly like have a connection to the bottom line and treat every dollar that's going out the door like it's their own dollar. Um, and so from that perspective, like certainly it, um, uh, ensure that everyone is, is kind of focused on that entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah. Like if you have somebody who like maybe isn't pulling their weight that day, like how do you go about um, talking to them and like kind of re-motivate them? Yeah. Look, I mean, we all have bad days. So certainly, you know, no problem about like having an off day or, you know, we also all have lives outside of work. So I can fully appreciate that things happen and, you know, we're a team. So you have to chip in and respond. Um, I would also say one of the most fundamental parts of a healthy team and a healthy organization is having giving and receiving frequent feedback, um, yeah. both positive and constructive. Like I need to know what I'm doing well and I need to know what I can do better just for my own personal improvement. And so I, I do that with my team as well. And I expect them to share it amongst themselves and them to share it with me. Um, and we have a formal review process that I've instated, but like, look, feedback, and it's not fun. It's never fun to, to deliver constructive feedback, but it, you know, if you deliver it the right way, truly like with their best interest in mind, like I appreciate it. They appreciate mm -hmm. it. You, 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 you want it. You want people who want to learn and grow. Yes. I think when people see change and opportunities, not as negative stressors, but as, oppor as opportunities um, to grow, I think that's, yep. that's what makes a company organization really great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Mm -hmm. So like, yes. what do you see for yourself and the company for like the next like 10 years? Whew, 10 years, big time horizon, man. Mm -hmm. I think in like, like two year periods, um, so look, you know, we're currently in a growth phase, uh, especially with coronavirus. So commodity prices have really come off. Equity prices are really low. And we're in a fortunate position that we have um, cash. So, you know, we'll likely be in a significant growth period um, this year and, you know, potentially some of next year. So I'd, I'd say, you know, continuing to grow that, that battery metals footprint um, and just becoming a, a substantial miner in our own right, continue, continuing to grow that reputation and brand, um, and really just, just having a product that end customers can, can trust and, you know, know it's traceable, know it, know it was mined in a sustainable way, such that end consumers can feel good about having sustainably sourced metal in their batteries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think I'm going to wrap the podcast up now really a pleasure talking to you, you know, love your optimism. So where can people find you um, online or if they want to follow you? Yeah, look, um, I, I'm uh, quite active on both LinkedIn and kind of on Instagram, although less so. Um, mm -hmm. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Ashley Zumwalt Forbes. And on Instagram, I'm at Ash Zum. So okay. fully my maiden name on that one, but yeah. that's all right. <laughs> All right, then we are going to wrap the podcast up and thank you guys for listening.